Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Is coming in gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello everybody and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Well today, we're speaking to a four-time Olympic medalist, a UN Sporting Ambassador and an Order of Australia medalist. Swimmer Daniel Kowalski experienced success and disappointment in the pool, but his career was underpinned by a dogged determination that made him one of the best distance swimmers in the world. At the 96 Atlanta Olympics, Kowalski became the first man in 92 years to earn medals in all of the 200, 400 and 1500 metre freestyle events. But it was the silver in the ladder behind Kieran Perkins that was the nightmare Kowalski took a long time to wake up from. But he has now. Daniel, hello. Welcome to the show. G'day, Sam. Good to connect again. Where do we find you at the moment in the world? Where are you residing? Um, I live in Sydney. I've been here for about 10 years and um, currently working for the Australian Olympic Committee. So it's, it's been an interesting year. To, to say the least. I reckon it has. Uh, we'll come back to the Olympics. So Sydney's a fair way away from Singapore, which not many people might know you. You were born in Singapore in 1975, the only son, younger child of Tony and Penny Kowalski. What what had taken your parents to Singapore, Daniel? Yeah, Dad's Canadian, Mum's English, and um, they actually met in Perth, and, and Dad was a drilling engineer and was, um, I guess, relocated to to Southeast Asia where we, I spent the first five years, a few months in Singapore after I was born and we moved to Malaysia, then Indonesia and then um, ultimately got relocated back to, to Australia and to Adelaide. So um, I don't remember a lot of that obviously being young, but there's elements that I, that I do remember fondly actually. Uh, well, what are your memories of that part of the world? I think you were there until you were six. Does it live on in your memory some in some way? Yeah, living that expat lifestyle, um, particularly in a place like Jakarta in Indonesia, um, was pretty cool for a young kid. You know, you essentially had um, your your dedicated um, servant and we had our own driver and we lived in a gated community with about 11 other families. Um, So it was a very unique experience. Um, Very sheltered too, of course, but um, the opportunities when we did get to, to leave the compound and to venture out in the hustle and bustle of a, of a city like Jakarta was really exciting. That'd be fascinating. And I think you moved back to Adelaide, it was in the end. Uh, your father's work took you to Adelaide. I think you were six years of age. So how and when, Daniel, did your relationship with the pool start? I assume it was pretty soon after returning to Australia or going to Australia and to Adelaide? 
Yeah, we, my sister and I, Siobhan, we, um, you know, we did swimming lessons and um, just mucked around in the pool, particularly in those years in Jakarta. But moving to Australia and obviously a new country, a new school, it was pretty obvious to my parents, in particular my dad, that, you know, sport was a massive part of the DNA in this country and saw it as an opportunity for my sister and I to make friends pretty quickly. So uh, we lived very close to the ocean um, in Adelaide. So not only for the, you know, the opportunity to, to make friends, but also from a safety point of view, we, you know, enrolled in the local swimming club and the local surf club and it, it's, it sort of went from there. So you were competing at what age though, Daniel? Before the age of 10, wasn't it? Racing? Yeah, I remember doing um, my first state titles. It was 10 and under. I was eight um, at the old Adelaide Aquatic Centre in North Adelaide. And hmm. we used to, um, I only ever used to swim in a 25-metre pool and, and that pool was 50 metres. And apparently I um, around the halfway mark, I, I was started to look for the wall and Obviously, it wasn't there, so I kept going, and then I end up banging my head against the wall at the 50 meter end, cried, and I got out. <laughs> so um, that was sort of my introduction to, you know, mainstream racing, so to speak. But I always loved the school carnival. I, lo- I loved any of those carnivals at, at that age. Actually, we used to travel far and wide, all around the state, sometimes interstate. Um, it's where my friends were as well, so it was just a, a great experience being able to do that growing up. Yeah, yeah. And was there a moment, though, and I imagine it was a, a couple of years after you banged your head on, on the wall, but uh, was there a moment when you thought, okay, I might be able to make something of this, so I can take this a lot further than um, some interstate carnivals? Oh, not till, not till much later. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking 16, 17, but you know, as a nine-year-old kid watching the 84 Olympics on TV in Los Angeles, and I'm like, oh, this is this looks really cool. Like, what is all of this about? And, you know, I don't know if it was the backdrop of, of Hollywood and the glitz and glamour, but I, I was just enamoured with the performances and, and the sideshow that went along with the Olympics. So I recognised very early on that that's what I want to do, but I didn't really comprehend the enormity of it all and what it really took to get there until much later. Yeah. Well, speaking of glitz and glamour, there's plenty of that in Monte Carlo. You found yourself there in 1989 as a 15-year-old. You were competing over there. You claimed bronze in the 800-metre free. You'd have been wide-eyed at 15 in Monaco. Yeah, for me, um, I was wide-eyed the whole time, to be honest with you, um, because I I never really felt like I belonged there on, on, on any stage because all of a sudden you're thrust into a team where the your teammates are people whose posters were still on your wall. And so all of a sudden you're surrounded by your heroes. And, um, you know, just being this young kid from Adelaide was pretty, it was pretty intimidating environment to, to go into. So the longer distance though, that would become your forte pretty quickly. I mean, why do you feel you gravitated to obviously the 800 at this age and the 1500 as well in the end? What was it about that particular discipline that suited you, do you think? It was the last event that I could do if I wanted to reach my, my goal. <laughs> no and, modesty, and no false dream. modesty here, please. No, no, I'm, I'm dead serious. My, my coach at the time, David James, pulled me aside and, you know, I tried the essentially it was going to be trying to fly and you know I'm 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 
pretty little guy, I guess, 5'11". Um, so I, d- I definitely didn't have sprinter ability either, both physically and just as a part of my makeup mm. physiologically. And so he's like, you know, there weren't many 1,500 metres from us in 88, 89. And then within six months of me deciding to focus on that, Glenn Houseman unofficially breaks the world record. Kieran Perkins breaks 15 minutes behind Glenn Houseman in the 1500, the second and third people to ever do it. So all, all of a sudden you've got the two of the three fastest in history um, in your own backyard. So that move to the 1500, um, at one point I was like, oh, what have I done? Um, because it's not it's not the easiest event to train for, but I enjoyed that aspect of it, that that sanctuary and following the black line as a kid in year 11 and 12 was something that I really relished on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, I had role models and the best in the world, you know, a couple of states over and um, it, it that made it more real. Yeah. I mean, 30 laps, as you just touched on, it's a long time to be alone with your thoughts. Yeah. Well, when you factor in some weeks, you're doing up to 80 kilometers a week. Um, all in preparation for only 30 laps. Oh. It's pretty daunting, but the I guess um, the beauty of the mindset is that you you can find wins in in every session that you do, and so it, it made what can be monotonous of following that line up and down quite enjoyable. When you touched on him there, Daniel, when did you first cross paths with Kieran Perkins? I mean, your careers would be so frequently intertwined as you just touched on he's two years your senior do you recall the moment when you first came across him i the commonwealth games trials for the 1990 commonwealth games were actually held in adelaide and i i was actually in the same heat as glenn house and when he unofficially broke that world record i had about 125 meters still to go but i remember the crowd vividly um and then I, I just I just remember this kid, this other kid from Queensland who was really young. Um, he's about 18 months older than me. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, but I couldn't really remember his name. It wasn't until the Commonwealth Games about, I don't know, six to eight weeks later that, you know, he really stood out and won that silver behind, behind Kieran. So it was that period of, you know, January 1990 to January 91 where he came second in the World Championships behind York Hoffman from Germany at the Worlds in Perth. Um, and then obviously he went on to, to stamp his authority from there. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, next, a young Daniel Kowalski sets his sights on the Olympic Games. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with former swimming star Daniel Kowalski. Well, Daniel, you had your sights set on the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. Now, as you touched on before... Australia actually at this point have the three best 1500 metre swimmers in the world and you're one of them, but we can only send two and ultimately you're edged out by Perkins and Houseman who go on to win gold and silver silver respectively with Perkins smashing the world record. Was it difficult to sit back and watch that event at those Olympics? 
No, not at all. Um, I'd, you know, I dropped nearly a minute off my best time within a three-month period going into those, you know, by the end of those Olympic trials. Um, I was still 16 years of age. I was in year 12 at school. Um, I'd had no senior international, like, real experience. And so mm. I, w- I just wouldn't have been ready to, to go to an Olympic Games. Um, I think I would have been very overwhelmed and overawed by the whole situation. Um, and, you know, I finished the year um, ranked sixth in the world. And, it, you know, that was a big game changer um, fr- from that third place. You know, I, I recognised I needed to step it up. And so my family, um, you know, packed up and we moved to the Gold Coast for my swimming. And um, that was a real massive career move for me in, in a positive direction. Yeah, but just that those Olympics in Barcelona, didn't your coach David James at one point suggest you could still get there by representing Canada, who obviously you had dual citizenship <laughs> with because of your father? You obviously rejected that idea, but was it tempting even for a fleeting moment? It well, it it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it was established very early on. I hadn't lived in Canada enough days to to be eligible. Right. Um, but I, I kind of knew, like, um, the times that people were swimming would require another considerable drop. Um, the, the way in which Kieran and Glenn, to a lesser extent, had started swimming the 1500, there was a lot more speed, uh, front-end speed. So mm. having that ability to go out quick and then sustain it over a period of time and then settle into a, a, a route, like a good rhythm. Um, I didn't have that easy speed yet. I wasn't strong enough. Um, I wasn't fit enough. Technically, I wasn't good enough. And so I knew all of these things. And whilst there may have been a small desire to want to go because I wanted to live out that dream I had as a nine-year-old kid, I thought, I'm, I just I need to be patient and wait. Um, so I'm kind of glad that I, I missed out because I, I think that's it can go one of two ways. It can be an amazing experience or it can be a crushing experience. And I don't think I was ready for, for it. Yeah, but you were coming. The improvement was there. Although the, you mentioned the move to the Gold Coast. I mean, the bad luck plagued you in the years after 92, didn't it? You had a shocking run. I think you got glandular fever in 93 and respiratory tract in, infections as well around that time that would have taken a bit of getting over. Yeah, it was, 93 was a really tough year because... You know, you, your family makes a sacrifice and you move to the Gold Coast where, you know, you, you know nobody. Um, you're swimming in a very elite environment. And I was, you know, having a lot of health issues, as you as you talked about. Um, and I still hadn't made a senior team yet. So I was really starting to feel a bit of pressure. So when I finally did make Pampac team for, for 1993, there was... Um, obviously joy but there was also massive amounts of of relief but what it did it taught me you know you don't necessarily have to feel good to swim good um, and the importance of the mental game yeah and you did get yourself right for the 94 com games but that I think was when the shoulder problems started to affect you but you fought on and you got silver behind a familiar name already at this stage in your life Perkins in the 1500 yeah, I mean, that was a race where he broke the world record in the 800, going going through in the 800 and the 1500. Um, and those games are pretty special because it was held 
uh, on Vancouver Island in a, in a town called Victoria, which is where my dad happened to be from. So yeah. there was a, a special connection to, to those games. And, you know, I'd beaten Kieran earlier in the year in the trials um, and broken 15 minutes for the first time myself. So I had really awoken the bear to my stupidity. <laughs> and he got a real fire in his belly. And that showed, you know, he won one of the Commonwealth Games, the 15 and the 400. Um, and then we had World Championships in Perth, uh, in, in Rome, sorry, a few weeks later, we, we flew straight there from the Commonwealth Games. And, you know, we got another Quinella there, him first, myself second. He smashed a world record in 403. He was really well and truly on a roll. But didn't you get food poisoning there on the eve of the competition as well? So the bad luck lingered? <laughs> I, yeah, I got. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but um, in between the heat and the final, yeah. So, um, you stay in a team hotel. We go back to the hotel, and the dining hall for the athletes had had closed because the fifteen hundred heats were the last event of the of the day. And so I just I can remember vividly this tomato did not look right, didn't really taste right. And, you know, I don't know if it was that, but shortly thereafter, I was sick. I couldn't hold down fluids. I was in a really bad way um, to the point where head coach Don Talbot actually said to to my coach, Dennis, don't think he should swim. It might not be good long-term health for him to do this. So um, it was a, you know, a touch and go thing. But in the end, I, I don't know how, but I, like I touched on before, you don't, have, you know, you don't have to feel good to swim good, and I, I, I felt extremely ordinary. Um, but I did my best time, and I came second. So, yeah, it is. It's the the mind, and it can be such a powerful tool if you can use it properly and to its full advantage. You mentioned how big the move was with the family to go from Adelaide to the Gold Coast, but in late '94, you made another big move. You moved down to Melbourne to train with Bill Nelson, who was then the coach of the Australian national swimming team, to improve your chances of earning selection for Atlanta '96. But Daniel, this is a rather unorthodox move because you actually, am I correct in saying, moved in with Bill, his wife, and his three kids? Yeah, I just, um, I just turned 18. I I loved the Gold Coast, but I was struggling with Dennis's training. Um, not 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 his the stuff we did, but more. I, I felt like I needed more of a disciplinarian in in my swimming. Um, Dennis is super intense, but can also be super laid back. And for me, I didn't want that at that particular point in time. I felt like I needed um, something stricter and that was definitely Bill um, and he was kind enough to, to let me stay with like, like he said with his family, young family three kids under three so that was quite an adjustment um, and, and that was you know in hindsight it was a you know one of the regrets that I had because I moved away from that extremely important support network, I thought I knew what I was doing was the right thing but um I, look, look, I got some great results, but I, I, if I could have my time over again, I probably wouldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, these were tough days, weren't they? I think you got off to a bad start. The shoulder problems flared again. Then I think you got conjunctivitis and chronic hay fever. And then, well, you had a couple of accidents, didn't you? You get uh, hit by a hit-and-run driver when you were riding your bike as well. I mean, and you might have had some dark days there where you might have even thought about, you know, going back and chucking it in even. 
Yeah, I've heard a lot about just going back to the Gold Coast. Yeah, I, you mean, I, it was my about the sixth session there in my first week and I just felt a pop in my shoulder and I knew that that wasn't good. And so I started the rehab and then I thought, oh, I need to stay fit. So I started running running around Yarra and before, it, I, before you know it, I had two stress fractures, one in each ankle. Um, and so it was a very slow grind. But it was my first spring in Melbourne. I could barely go outside without like sneezing for for minutes on end. And it was, it was just like, this is ridiculous. I, I don't think I can keep doing this. I wanted to, I wanted to pack it in and, and go home. Um, you know, but I stuck it out and then started the rehab intensely by going to the AIS in Canberra so I could just be in that bubble environment. And then, yeah, it was one of my last days there. I was riding the bike in and I got hit by a car and landed on the shoulder and I thought, oh, here we go. Start all over again. And, um, you know, 95 turned out to be a pretty good year. I swam really well at the Pan Packs, which was a, a test event for the 96 Olympics. So it was... It, it was good. I mean, I'd I'd had the, you know, few things not go my way, but um, I'd set myself well for that Olympic year, definitely. Yeah, and '95 was the turning point, wasn't it? Because by April '96, you're absolutely motoring. I mean, you took the swimming trials by storm that year. You must have felt like you're the peak of your powers. You'd come full circle. I felt like I was, like I said, I was. I had started to get that experience under my belt. We had the World Short Course in um, Rio at the end of 95, and I did did well there. And so for me, it was, you know, 96, clock strike midnight, you know, Peter Pub, the first, second weekend, now that, um, after swimming really well at the state titles. And so it was just, yeah, bring on Olympic trials in, in April of 2000. And, and then obviously you know, get to the Olympics. And by this point, you'd had Perkins covered, I reckon. You'd relegated him to Australia's second best distance swimmer. At least that's what the records were showing. But am I right in saying, Daniel, the media and the public were just taking a little while to get on the bandwagon? Wasn't there a rather awkward live cross with you and Kieran on the old Hey Hey at Saturday? Yeah, they showed that. It's still really bizarre to me that they showed that final live on Hey Hey at Saturday at the 96 Olympic trials because you know, Kieran was the world record holder, the defending Olympic champion, and he, he'd yet to qualify for the team. And so it was, yeah, broadcast live. And I ended up winning, and he came second and obviously qualified, and that was the news story. So I'm, I'm just standing in front of the, the camera, and we're doing a live interview with Daryl Summers and Dickie Nee. And um, I, I must have just looked like a stunned mullet who didn't didn't know what to do or what to say because. I, I didn't <laughs> I didn't say anything. Um, but, you know, and fair enough, it wasn't about me. It was about, you know, the, the king. Um, so I I knew my place. I, I most definitely knew my place. And, and there was a press conference around this time too, wasn't there, where you, where you got blindsided by a pretty, a pretty brutal question that concerned you and Kieran and you perhaps uh, taking Kieran's mantle as the country's best distance swimmer? Yeah, it was along the lines of what's it like to be the most hated man in the country. Um, which as a 20-year-old kid was pretty hard to swallow and I couldn't really rationalise it um, or understand it at the time. Um, and I still can't really today. Um, but, you know, that was 
the nature of what the sport was becoming because of the performances of people like Kieran, the emergence of Susie O'Neill. Um, it was an exciting time for the sport. Kowalski exciting this crowd and Neil Brooks comes down with about 150 metres to swim. Trying hard is Dolan. Dolan about 10 metres back. Around goes Kowalski, then the final 100. Kowalski on song, looking terrific, and Dolan has got a fight on his hand for the silver. A couple of them throwing out challenges. England, in fact, James Slater has moved past him. Slater to second place, and the Netherlands on terms with America. This so is America are faltering, but Kowalski turns for the final 50. This is a blowout. This is the world championships, not the school sports, and Australia are giving it to him. 7-11, 9-5, the world record. Watch that clock. Kowalski has about 28 metres to swim. Halfway back down the pool, Daniel Kowalski being urged on by this crowd. They're on song, and so is he. So is this Australian team. Kowalski driving for the wall now. Check that clock. He's just going to miss it. I think oh. it's done. Just missed it. But a great gold medal swim for Australia. 7-12-48, that's a new Commonwealth record, new championship record. They just missed out on the world record. Kowalski's out of the water. Look at that. Come on, Australia. Stand up and cheer. Australia, world champions. No, that was high stress, of course. And yeah, with This Is Your Sporting Life, of course, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, the race that shaped Daniel's life forever. The Atlanta Olympics is next. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with former Aussie swimming sensation Daniel Kowalski. Well, Daniel, all individual sports at the highest possible level require extreme mental strength and fortitude. How much of a head game was the 1,500 metres on the international stage in and around that time of Atlanta 96? That was the, the most important thing, what was happening between between years. Um, and the reason I say that is because I had qualified in lane four to the final and Kieran had qualified in lane eight. For pretty much our whole international career, I was always either in the lane next to him or maybe one or two over. I could always see him. He would always dictate the race. And, and in most cases, he he was a fair way in front, but he wasn't on form. Um, and that was pretty obvious. You know, Kieran was still 12 seconds quicker than me. Um, so I have to have a really good day and he has to have a pretty bad day for, for me to to really be in, in the chance. And I, and I was, everything on paper, you know, indicated that that was my race. And, you know, the intestinal fortitude and the mental strength that he had to just take it out from lane eight and just go for it right from the start. I couldn't see him. I didn't know, didn't know where I was essentially because I, I didn't have that, you know, I didn't have him there. You know, I was a good swimmer. I wasn't a great swimmer. Um, and so for me, I, I was in no man's land and it was really frustrating because you spent, you know, I spent so many years following that black line up and down. So, you know, essentially for that moment and I, it was almost like I'd forgotten how to do it. I didn't back myself um, and all the work that I'd done. And it, it really highlighted to me just how important that mental game was. And I had that early on in my career. But I think as the 
expectations that I placed on myself grew um, and the fear of, of failure increased, I, I struggled. Um, and that was evident in, in, in that race. You know, I did, I did a time that was ridiculously slow, even by my standards. Um, so it was an extremely frustrating race because, you know, I'm just floundering in no man's land. The guy from Great Britain, Grant Smith, catches up to me. No one had been within, you know, 10 seconds of me and 20 seconds of Kieran in two years. So it was, it, it was tough going. And it proved to be tough going for a long time afterwards as well. You actually once said that as you sat on the back of the golf cart, as it you know slowly motored towards the Georgia Tech pool, that you were already gone even before the race. In in hindsight, is that still how you you felt? Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Because uh, it it I knew that I I, I just wasn't in in the right headspace. Um, I, I just didn't believe that I could just swim on my own and do what I needed to do. Um, I'd, I'd, I guess I'd fallen into this trap of knowing that KP would be there and he would go out of bullet a gate and I just had to stick to my plan, which is just try to sit on his hip and then, you know, swim him down. I had more speed than him and I was always factoring on that. I was always going to be quicker than him down the last 50. And I just thought, that's not going to be the case. And so everything in, into that, the only good thing about the preparation on the actual day was when Susie O'Neill and Patria Thomas came first and second to fly in the event before us, we'd finally won a gold medal um, as a swimming team. And, you know, there's a bit of pressure off, but other than that, I just, I was like, oh, here we go again, kind of thing. And it wasn't what I envisaged as that nine-year-old kid, that's for sure. And his helmets in lane four. Can he eventually break through? Watch for Loder. The pace will be on. Watch for Holmerts and Borges to go out fast. Kowalski in lane seven. That's two away from us as we look from the bottom of the screen. Lane one is in the distance. On their marks then. And away. And Borges got a pretty good start in lane one. Expect him to go out hard and also away well the American Josh Davis. Holmerts is pushing through in the centre. And Kowalski is nicely placed as well. He seems to be going out a little harder already. Obviously, as we thought, his strategy is not far off the lead. Going through now, Holmerts would be in front. It's Daniel got a fantastic start for a distance through, but it looks like Borges over the front going over just after Anders Holmerts. 24.9, pretty quick, and Daniel very, very well placed, 25.61. Holmerts in front, Davis would be second, Borges would be third, but Kowalski is very nicely placed. He would only be half a body length from the leader. Anders Holmerts, he was denied by Armstrong in Seoul, he was denied by Sadovi in Barcelona. Can he break through here? Coming down to the halfway mark, he leads by half a body length. We look at the world record split of 52-42, and he's well under it, as he normally is, 51-9-7 for Holmerts. Daniel Kowalski, 53-3, he's going to be right in the middle hunt on this last 50. And Loder got a great turn, he's putting it now to Holmerts. Daniel Loder is starting to come through, and maybe he's in front. Terrific turn. He used the wall so effectively. Loder and Holmerts. Gorgeous across in lane one, and now Kowalski is starting to wind up. Daniel Loder will be the Olympic champion from New Zealand. It's a race for the minor placings. And look at Kowalski. He is right there. This is going to be a blanket finish, but Loder looks too strong for my money. Kowalski finished strongly in his hip this morning. Can he grab a bronze here? In front, it's Loder. Holmerts again may be relegated across in 
lane one. Burgess, or rather Burgess, would be in third place. In front, Loder. Kowalski is starting to storm through now. Loder's in front. Kowalski may have moved to second. It's going to be very tight. Going in in front. It's won by Loder. Oh, it's a blanket finish for second. Touch in it. Borges, 148.08. Kowalski, 148.25. What a magnificent swing by Daniel Kowalski. You're getting the medals as of 1500 from a look at that. Across the Tasman, we have Daniel Loder. He deserves that. He bronzed in Barcelona. Third at the World Championships in Rome in this event. And the gold medal is going back to the Kiwis. So Kieran obviously defies all the odds to famously win from lane eight. And you win an Olympic relay gold, two bronze medals at those games as well. But didn't you lock that 1,500 metres silver away in the bank vault for four or five years until you started <laughs> seeing someone to, to sort of process the disappointment, if you like? Yeah, I think it was even longer than that, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until about 99 that I really started to recognise that I needed some help because it was, there were was some really dark times. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of that was definitely performance related, um, or so I thought. Um, and then I thought it was, you know, linked maybe to you know, my sexuality and coming to terms with that. Um, there were so many factors at play, but for me, the most important thing was I wanted to try to get to the Sydney Olympics and enjoy it. So I started working with a sports psychologist um, to ensure that I could, you know, have that, you know, faith and trust in myself that I can do this um, and that I can actually go to the Olympics and really enjoy the whole experience and that's why it was really important for me to to seek that help out you never used as an excuse daniel but the shoulder injuries is it true that they were so bad at around this time that they would dislocate when you hit the water and you had to quickly relocate them before you started swimming yeah essentially every time i would do the catch phase so when you grab that water and you push it back it would pop out and then i'd pop it back in again when i'd throw it back over in the recovery phase and obviously over time that the wear and tear is is pretty pretty bad um and you know just getting to the sydney olympics it was essentially swim for six weeks cortisone injections kicked for four weeks build up again to swim again cortisone injections it was just you know round the clock for about nine months just to to get there and I made the decision I'd gone back to Dennis Cottrell on the Gold Coast and surrounded myself with my family again. And um, that was really important. But we recognised, listen, the only spot for you is, is a relay. Um, there's no point trying to do anything more. Kieran was still going. Grant Hackett was on the up and up. There was this young kid out of Sydney called Ian Thorpe. Like, mm. there was the abundance of talent. Was it, was, it was just ridiculous how much we had. So, for me, it was it was a win if I made that relay. Yeah, and you did. I mean, you got the gold medal in the 4 by 200 metre free. Ian Thorpe did take your place in the final, but obviously as a swimmer in the qualifying heat, you shared the gold medal. And just with Atlanta, I mean, we, we've spoken about this before, as you just touched on, it was raw for a long, long time. I, I just wanted to ask you how it sits with you now, some, you know, 24 years later. <laughs> um, I'm extremely proud of, of what I achieved. You know, it, it was probably about 2010 that I really was really comfortable with it all. Um, 
you know, looking back, I'm disappointed in myself that I beat myself up about, you know, winning three individual medals and feeling like a failure. But mm. um, you, you you get one opportunity for the most part. There's not there's not many who can back up and go to two and succeed. So those who can go on and go to three and Michael Phelps going to four or five, like I, I just can't comprehend that. So, um, you know, reconciling it all took a while. Um, but now I'm, I'm extremely proud of, of that because, you know, it's, no one can take that away from me. And I, I take solace in that. We're talking to swimming star Daniel Kowalski on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back to discuss Daniel's life after the pool, right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Olympic and World Championship medalist Daniel Kowalski is our guest today. Well, Daniel, you announced your retirement from swimming in 2002. Transitioning to life after professional sport is something that a lot of athletes can struggle with. Was it difficult for you? Um, I was definitely one of the lucky ones um, because I'd been around enough and seen enough people who being a swimmer was their their only identity and you know my schooling and then university was extremely important to me but it was sort of like a no-brainer from my parents point of view that it had to get done Um, and so I feel really lucky that I was able to do it quite seamlessly but ultimately the decision to retire was made by my body and my mind was fine with that um, there was never any desire to make any comeback. I don't. I didn't feel like I had any unfinished business because I literally knew that physically I just couldn't do it anymore. So I felt very lucky from from that point of view. And you know, I found my way. I, I recognised just like with my swimming career that in order to progress professionally in life, you needed to you needed to start at the bottom and 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 make your way up and. My, my first job or my first experience was literally literally interning with the Brisbane Lions in, in the sponsorship and marketing team and and then sort of going from there. And I really relished that opportunity to be in an environment um, that was, you know, so different to what I'd been doing for the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, you were certainly busy out of the pool. You did your sports marketing degree at Bond University. You are assistant swimming coach at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2007, I think, Athlete Career and Education Advisor at the Vic Institute of Sport as well. And as you touched on off the top, you're currently the Olympian Services Manager at the AOC, I guess primarily responsible for what we were just talking about, that athlete transition program and helping athletes get ready for life after sports. So something that you've lived, you've got uh, experience with, and now you can pass on uh, your wisdom. Yeah, but, you know, that wellbeing space is forever evolving um, and becoming far more important and people transition in life many times and so um, along with wanting to genuinely engage with our Olympic family we wanted to be able to provide them with opportunities of support as they transition and, and, and this year you know sadly has been um, a definite reflection on why it is important with people being made redundant or 
interesting having to change their skill set and, and not knowing where to go. Um, um, obviously, from a, a mental health point of view, needing the support. So, you know, it's highlighted the need to to ensure that that support is is ongoing um, because it, it it's it can be a difficult experience over time. And so, I, I love I love the opportunity that the, the challenge of the postponement of the games has has been one that um, I'll never ever forget for for many reasons, like a lot of us. Um, and it's the most impressive thing to come out of well, one of many things has been the resiliency of the athletes and the coaches who have been preparing for Tokyo. And mm. you, you, you see that on a daily basis. I, I just couldn't, I I don't think I could have been able to do what, what they're currently doing. That's for sure. No, oh, just one thing you can't prepare for, isn't it? Um, so yeah, kudos to them. You mentioned wellbeing. I mean, you took a big step in your own personal life, I guess, to achieving that for yourself, it was April 2010, you were 34, you decided to announce that you're gay. Can you tell us about the journey, you touched on it earlier, to get to that point where you felt comfortable in, in saying that? Yeah, it was it was a long journey and I probably, I, it was never my intention to like publicly come out. I didn't mm. really feel at the time that it was something I needed to do. You know, I'd, I'd come out to my family five years and friends five years before that. Um, but um, there was a, a rugby league player in, in the UK called Gareth Thomas. Yeah. Um, I was starting to get a little bit of pressure from some of the magazines um, who were going to out me. And so I thought I would just take it into my own hands. And really? I ended up writing an editorial piece. And, um, you know, I, it, it cliched. But you know, I felt like if I could, if I could help one person, then it was worth it. Um, and you know, not long after that, Jason Ackerman started going on his rants, and I felt I, I really felt like what I did was was worth it because I I whilst I didn't really know where I stood when I was an athlete, I knew for a few years afterwards, and I'd really struggled with that um, for a number of reasons. So for me you know, coming out ended up being a, gr- a great thing. And, you know, I've, I was working in sport and I've stayed working in sport the whole time and I've never once felt um, not welcome or ostracised, um, not accepted. Um, so I feel very fortunate uh, with that regard. And in terms of well-being and happiness, I imagine it, it even though you'd made the decision, it, as you say, with your family five or six years earlier, I imagine it made all, all the difference as well. Yeah, definitely. You, you know, people talk about this weight being lifted off their shoulder and so mm. forth. I definitely felt like that was was the case. And you know, there's a lot of work still to be done, but um, I'm I'm really you know grateful to to live in a country where you know if I wanted to get married, I could. Um, where you know people can openly be themselves, and you know, for people who've lived it that is a big deal for for those who may not necessarily understand it and think, oh, why is it such a big deal? Um, I get that too. So it's it's that balance, but I, I definitely, I, I feel like I'm whole now. Well, Daniel Kowalski, been great to catch up today. I mean, Australia is, as we know, a country mad for water sports and esteems the athletes who excel in them. Well done on all you achieved, which was plenty but just as importantly, well done on not letting Atlanta define you. It's been an amazing journey. Best of luck for the next chapter, and thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Sam. It's great to chat.
And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.